where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. The point of this is, is about, first of all, understanding how the spirit of the age influences the way we think about sex and about marriage. And not just understanding the way that that influence comes in, but doing something about that influence. We use these two individuals, Marx and Freud, because they are arguably the two most influential thinkers of, you know, the 19th, 20th centuries. And their influence and impact is really being felt perhaps more now um, than at any other time. We have absolutely lost our minds when it comes to human sexuality. Amen? I, I mean, we've gone, again, at, at first, it was, you know, the whole, you know, homosexual movement and that move from, you know, from, from, from sodomy to homosexual to gay, isn't it interesting how, you know, the terminology just sort of fast-forwarded on us? We went from, from, from sodomy, which is a biblical idea of unnatural sex, to, you know, homosexuality, which was more of a sort of sanitized, you know, kind of scientific-sounding, to now just gay, which was a word that we already had right, that we understood, but now has been co-opted to mean something completely different. And we were right to be up in arms about that whole movement and, and in this whole, you know, same-sex marriage movement. But now, that seems tame. Amen, somebody. Did you ever think that you'd long for the good old days when all we had to fight about was the definition of marriage? Now we're fighting about the definition of a man and the definition of a woman. I mean, now we're, now we're essentially getting to the heart of our, of our humanity and to the heart of us being made in the image of God and, and just being able to say, Today, I identify as. The Olympics this year, the Olympics, I, again, I can remember having conversations with people during the last Olympics about the danger of the transgender movement and how we were losing our minds and how women's sports were going to eventually disappear because you would have biological males identifying as females competing in women's sports. It's not going to happen the other way around. And all of a sudden, women will disappear. And at the Olympics four years ago, I guess it was five years ago, the Olympics five years ago now, people were saying, that's ridiculous. You and I both know that would never happen. You're just being an alarmist. And a number of transgender athletes competed at the Olympics this year. How long before, you know, some unscrupulous country like, I don't know, North Korea, says, you know what, at the 2024 games, we might not win any medals on the men's side. But we could take a bunch of them on the women's side. You're a woman, you're a woman, you're a woman, you're a woman. Let's go. Ideas have consequences. And we're beginning to see those consequences. We're now talking about birthing persons. Why are we talking about birthing persons? Because trans women are women and trans men are women 
And now you have people who will argue like tooth and nail that men can get pregnant. And it kind of backfired on them recently, didn't it? The Texas abortion decision comes down. And the radical pro-abortion, let's kill all the babies we can crowd comes out and cries and moans and like always they go to their standard argument once again men deciding what women can do with their bodies by the way they didn't have a problem with that with Roe v. Wade but that's another discussion but once again men deciding what women can do with their bodies but this time we go wait a minute y'all told us just last week that men can get pregnant. How are you going to tell us this week that men can't have anything to say about abortion if last week you told us men can get pregnant? Can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? I mean, you know. It's your own folly. And so as I was assigned this, I thought, Isn't it interesting that our children are growing up in a world where unless things change dramatically or unless the Lord <laughs> returns, they will always have this reality in the back of their minds or this unreality in the back of their minds. Just like people in, you know, my generation have a hard time remembering when we didn't have cell phones and the interwebs. And I know as I say that, there are young people going, wait a minute, what? Yes, there was a time when we didn't have cell phones and the internet. And there was a time when we didn't have the idea crammed down our throats that we don't know what a woman is or what a man is or that it's somehow wrong and offensive to have you know a, a, a gender reveal for a baby why is it wrong or offensive because if you are revealing that your baby in the womb is a boy or a girl, you're robbing them of their right and opportunity to tell you, I would say 15 years from now, but now it's like not even, six or seven years from now, what they actually are. That's the world that we're living in. And it has tremendous consequences. The world where on the one hand we want to say that there are no distinctions between men and women and that a man today can be a woman tomorrow and a woman today can be a man tomorrow we're, on the one hand we're saying that and on the other hand we have the me too movement which is saying protect women from men so in that context how do we think about sex and Well, there is a word from the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at those first five verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it is amazing how clearly and poignantly this passage speaks to these issues. 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, beginning verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. 
Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now in 1 Corinthians 7 through 16, Paul is actually answering questions that the Corinthian church has asked him. They, they have written him a number of questions. And so he responds to them, now concerning this, now concerning that, now concerning this issue about which you wrote. And, and this is the first of those where he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And, and this statement here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, is more than likely a, a, a restatement of the question that was asked. As one commentator has noted, apparently a group of believers in Corinth set themselves against the immorality prevalent in the city. They advocated celibacy and declared that this state was to be a norm for the rest of local Christians. These Corinthians were saying that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so here in Corinth, in first century Corinth, was so rife with sexual obscenity and so rife with sexual immorality that there was a phrase that was used. If you were sort of debased and depraved sexually, you were said to be, to be Corinthianized. It's how bad it was. And in responding to this, there were apparently those in Corinth who said that they needed to go all the way in the other direction toward this idea that being a Christian meant that you not only rejected the, the sexual immorality of the Corinthian culture, but, but that you rejected it to the point to where you embraced celibacy. And so Paul gets... A letter, much like the emails that I get from time to time. Is it acceptable for a Christian to? Is it okay for a Christian to? And so he responds. And he responds like you always have to respond when somebody asks that kind of question. I know that in school, we're always taught, no, 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 there are no bad questions. That's actually a bad question. Because if you're asking, is it okay for a Christian to? Well, what that means is you're, you're, you're not asking, or I hope you're not asking. Sometimes I even get these questions, right? What it means is you're not asking a question about the black and white teaching of Scripture. In other words, people don't write an email and go, I'm just curious. Is it okay for a Christian to murder somebody? Is it okay for a Christian to commit adultery? Right? If, if there's a verse for it, then you wouldn't be writing the email, right? You're writing the email because it's some issue about which there's not a particular verse, and it's more of a wisdom issue. And if it's more of a wisdom issue, then asking is it acceptable for a Christian to is a terrible question because you're trying to turn wisdom into law. So you're saying, hey, I've got a wisdom issue, and I'd like for you to give me a law answer. Which means you're asking the wrong question. You need to be asking a question about the relationship between law and gospel or something else, like not the particular thing that you're asking about. So whenever your question is, is it acceptable for a Christian to, and my favorite is when I get that about something that they know that I do or have done. So, for example, I am practice martial arts. I'm, I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I will compete again in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as soon as I get released by my doctors. But anyway, so I compete in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I love it. You know, people are like, you know, you're a martial artist. I was just wondering, is it acceptable for a Christian to be a martial artist? <laughs> and sometimes, you know, bad Vody 
wants to just write back and go, no, that's completely unacceptable. <laughs> but instead, I let kind of bad Vody write back and go, which martial arts are you referring to? The ones in the Bible, like boxing, wrestling, archery? Yeah, those are all martial arts. Martial means war. Those are war arts. But do you get my point? Now, all of a sudden, we get back into that wisdom area. Well, this is what Paul is dealing with. Is this an acceptable idea? Is it right for us to reject sex and to embrace instead celibacy? And Paul starts back, and he says... Well, it's good for people to exercise celibacy. But it's not as simple as that. We need to think about sex from a biblical perspective, not just from an anti-cultural perspective. Our approach to human sexuality can't be limited to they do this, therefore we don't do it, or they do this, Therefore, we do that. We have to have something more significant. So I want to look at three ways. There are more than three ways. Really, there, there, there's four ways that this text speaks to and negates some ideas that our world puts forth. The first idea that this text negates is the idea that everything is sexual. The idea that that's the essence of who we are. And if you want to see examples of this, you need to look no further than people who say, my identity is. I am homosexual. I am transgender. I am non-binary. I, I am. That's who I am. That is the essence of who I am. Well, the text rejects that. Look, look at the first verse again. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Celibacy is okay. Celibacy, celibacy is acceptable because sex is not all you are. And there are some people who are called to that. By the way, Paul is one of the people who was called to that. So this rejects the idea that sex is everything and sex is all we are. You know, Freud and his ideas were highly sexualized. They were also marginally scientific, largely discredited, and unparalleled in their influence. We still hold on to completely disproven and rejected Freudian ideologies. For Freud, this idea of the psychosexual being was an idea that we really went through these five phases of our lives that all had to do with our sexual energy or libido and whether or not that was dealt with appropriately. The five phases were oral, anal, phallic, latent, and genital the five phases of development. Again, hyper-sexualized, that ultimately that's who we are. And this text rejects that. This text says, no, that's not all we are, and that it can be and often is completely appropriate for people to live celibate lives. Singleness is not less than. And if you're here today and you're single, hear that. Singleness is not less than. Amen? God can not only call you to that, but God can use you in that in incredibly powerful ways. And if that is the spiritual gift or one of the spiritual gifts that God has given you, then you embrace that and reject the idea that without sex, you're not fully realized. The second idea that our world puts forth that is rejected by this text is the idea that there 
are no moral standards regarding sex. Our world would say when it comes to sex, if it feels good, do it. Or as one song that I grew up used to say, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. It might be a nice tune, but it's a terrible theology. Amen? But ultimately, that's where we are. How do you know that your sexual identity is right? How do you know? How do you... Because it feels right. And if it feels right, then it is right. How do you know that you're actually a woman in spite of the fact that biologically every cell in your body is male? Because I've always felt like a woman. Do you know how insulting that is to women? For me to be able to say, I know what it feels like to be a woman is an insult to women. And yet, that's what every transgender woman is saying. It's a man who says, I know what it feels like to be you, female person. How incredibly insulting, not just to women, but how incredibly insulting to the God who made us. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And even when you get to the garden and God makes Adam, the words that are used in the Hebrew basically make it like this. With Adam, he took some dirt and made it. But Eve, he fashioned. Not the same. Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Not the same. And we take that and we say, there's no mystery there. And then it's so incredibly ironic because we've been told for decades, right? We've been told for decades that all of these things are social constructs. The, the roles of men and women, the toys that they play with, the things that they like. Who are we to say that, you know, girls can't like trucks and football and, you know, boys can't like, you know, dolls and whatever, right? We've been told that for, we've been told that for decades. But now we're told, I've always known that I was a man trapped in a woman's body. Why? Because I like dolls. And pretty things. The exact opposite of what we've been saying for decades. Or what we've been being told for decades. And what they hope is that either we don't remember or that we're so intimidated that we don't call them on it. Well, I remember. And I ain't scared. This is also from the Marxist idea, this materialist idea that man is merely material. That somehow sex is just a, a material and physical activity, not a spiritual one. And that we should indulge our sexual urges no matter what they are. But again, this text speaks clearly to that. Verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 5. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This text speaks clearly to the idea that there is sexual morality and there is sexual immorality. There are things that are acceptable and there are things that are unacceptable and man is not the one who determines what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. God determines that because God is the one who created man and he's the one who created sex. Genesis 2, 24 and 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. 
that one flesh union is absolutely a physical union. Yes, it's a spiritual and an emotional union, but it is a physical union. It is a physical union that speaks to the way that men and women are designed. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a statement about righteousness. Secondly, God gave sex its meaning and its purpose. The communion between men and women, which is a, a picture, if you will, of the communion within the Godhead. The, the, the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And the woman who is made from the man, and children who proceed from the union of the man and the woman. This communion there. There's also procreation there, which again speaks to the design of sex. If you want to know whether or not sex is appropriate, one of the things you look at is the design of it. And when you look at the design of sex, that it was meant to bring about procreation, there's only one configuration wherein that's possible. Amen, somebody. And thirdly, God gave us sex for sanctification so that the desires that we have can be met within the context and confines of a relationship that allowed that to be righteous. God also sets the parameters for sex. God sets the male-female parameter for sex. And God sets the marriage parameter for sex. We see this elsewhere as well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Earlier in this same book, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with this issue beginning in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, not meant for, not made for, not created for, not designed for, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And more specifically, glorify God in your sex life. Now, the world is not correct when it argues that there are no boundaries or that the only boundary is that in which you find pleasure at the moment. Thirdly, the world is wrong when it argues that traditional marriage necessarily involves abusive power dynamics. Again, this Marxist idea of the oppressor-oppressed paradigm, this idea applied to the marital union. The world is wrong, and we've heard about that earlier. But in verses 3 and 4, Paul speaks to this. Listen to what he says. Because again, not only do people say generally that, you know, that, that the marital relationship, this patriarchal relationship is, you know, an, an abusive power dynamic, but specifically within Christianity. That specifically the Bible is the culprit. But listen carefully to what Paul writes in verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Aha, there's that patriarchy. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And it's interesting. Whereas in Ephesians chapter 5, for example, it's, it's clear, and I think people err significantly when they talk about this mutual submission in marriage. The Bible does not teach mutual submission in marriage. It teaches male headship and female submission to male headship. But within the sexual relationship in marriage, it very much teaches that mutuality. That our bodies belong to one another. Again, completely at odds with this idea of an abusive power dynamic. So convinced are they of this abusive power dynamic that Ari Horkman, formerly with the UN, denounced the idea that high rates of divorce and out-of-wedlock births represent a social crisis, claiming instead that out-of-wedlock births and divorce represent a triumph of human rights over patriarchy. Yeah, you heard me. Out of wedlock births and divorce are good for women because it represents a triumph over the abuse of patriarchy. Yes, better for you to have a baby by yourself raise a baby by yourself and be left by a man to raise the baby by yourself than for you to live in a relationship where you'd have to live under the headship of a man. Listen to this. From the Declaration of Feminism in November 1971, marriage has existed for the benefit of men and has been a legally sanctioned method of control over women. We must work to destroy it. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and to not live individually with men. So much for the idea that, that feminism, and you, you've heard this before, right? You've heard this lie before. No, 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 no. Feminism was just about men not leading and taking their proper roles and then women feeling like they needed to step into the vacuum. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Feminism was the exact opposite of that. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 31, we've alluded to it, but listen to what the word of God says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is the same text where, where, where earlier on, Paul makes it clear that there is male headship in marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he goes back and quotes the Old Testament text that we read earlier. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. It seems like an oxymoron, right? Live your wives in an understanding manner, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Obliterating the idea that the only way that you can acknowledge and believe in a woman submitting to her husband or in a woman as the weaker vessel is that you have to dishonor women. The text says the exact opposite. You honor the woman because she is the weaker vessel. Finally, the world says that sexual satisfaction is found in random, varied, uncommitted encounters. 
They try to tell us in books and movies and articles and everything else that the people who are really sexually fulfilled are the people who are out there doing God knows what with God knows who. The media says that the sexually satisfied are the young, the single, the promiscuous, and the sexual deviants. That, that, that's what they tell us. They don't tell us the truth about those lifestyles. They don't tell us the truth about people who live like that and the emptiness that exists within the hearts and souls of individuals who live like that. And the lies that they have to continually tell themselves as they live that kind of life. Like a drug addict who can never find that first high again and destroys their life searching for it. At the same time, they portray Christianity as sexually uptight and rigid and legalistic. And as people who only view sex as a means of reproduction. And find no pleasure in it. The Bible envisions something very different though. Verse 5 of our text. Do not deprive one another. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again. So that Satan may not tempt you. Because of your lack of self-control. It's not just here that we find this kind of language. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Amen. This is what the Bible teaches. So if people think, no, 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 Christianity is rigid and uptight and it's no, they're not reading the Bible. And if Christians are living like this, then we're not reading the Bible. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. It's a beautiful picture in the Song of Solomon. You know, again and again we hear, you know, do not awaken love before it's time, right? But Song of Solomon doesn't carry that all the way through to the end. Because eventually it's time comes. And it's time comes there in chapter 4, and it's a beautiful picture in chapter 4. First, it starts out with a picture of the, the husband exploring and discovering his wife. We got kids in here, so I won't go through all of that text. But in verse 16, there is a crescendo. Awake, O north wind, and come and south wind blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruits. That, my friends, is neither rigid nor uptight. <laughs> and it's the Bible. And all of this culminates in Revelation 19. Then I heard, verse 6, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the wedding of the Lamb and the consummation of this union between the Lamb and his bride. And sex between a man and a woman is a living, breathing picture 
of the beauty of this consummation that we anxiously anticipate and long for. No, the Bible does not paint a picture of godly men and women being uptight and rigid and only seeing sex as something that exists for procreation. On the contrary, those of us who know the triune God and those of us who understand the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that he has for his bride that was manifested in him laying down his life for her on the cross, understand that this picture of sex is something that is far more glorious than you and I can ever comprehend. Far more satisfying than anything that you and I can make up or derive on our own. Far more beautiful than anything that the world is trying to offer us with its counterfeits. Because at the end of the day, those counterfeits ultimately leave us empty. They leave us wanting. They leave us longing. However, the biblical reality, not so. It is the only thing that will satisfy. And it's also the only thing that will make those proximate pleasures worthwhile. In other words, you can't truly appreciate or enjoy sex until you appreciate and enjoy how and why it was made. The other side of this is, if you don't know the purpose of a thing, you will eventually abuse it. And that's true for a hammer or a husband. So don't allow the world and its influences to dictate to you what human sexuality is. Because if you do, you will allow the world and its influences to rob you of one of the most beautiful treasures that God has given to humanity. So go forth. And don't just enjoy, but go forth and enjoy rightly. Let me say this in closing. One of the reasons that coming generations are so influenced in this area is because the world is saying to them, sex is awesome. Sex is glorious. Sex is beautiful. Which, by the way, is all true. But what they mean by sex is something completely different than what we're talking about. And then those of us who have the Bible which tells us that sex is glorious, sex is awesome, sex is beautiful, are saying to our children, no, 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 it's ugly, stay away from it. And the God who created them, created them in a way that they know that's not true. And so what do they do? They grow up and they learn that we're lying to them. And they look to the world which speaks about sex in the way that we ought to speak about sex and they end up unduly influenced. No, they should hear from us that it's awesome. It's glorious. It's beautiful. But, do not awaken love before it's time. Not because it's ugly, but because you don't want to do anything to detract from how awesome and beautiful and glorious it is. Do you see the difference?
May it never be said of us that we are the people who think lightly of human sexuality. That we are the people that don't celebrate and rejoice in human sexuality. In fact, people ought to be coming to us to learn how to properly enjoy this reality. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Father and our Creator and the Creator of everything that is and that was and that is to come, we bow before you in humble adoration, thanking you for your good gifts. Thanking you for creating us in your own image and giving to us things that are true and good and beautiful. Grant by your grace that we might rejoice in the truth, beauty, and goodness of all of your creation. And grant that that might be true even in the area, and especially in the area of human sexuality. Guard us both from the tendency of the world to make it an end in itself and guard us from the tendency to run so far away from the world to a place where we make it no end at all. And grant that we might pursue this area of our lives like we do all area of our lives. To find you, your truth, and your glory, and to rejoice in it in the way that you intended. Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice who have fallen prey to the culture's lies in this regard. and who struggle and battle with guilt and shame and confusion. I pray that you, by your presence and by your spirit, would comfort them, confront them, and conform them to the image of your Son, and teach them to walk in your truth. Father, I pray for those who perhaps haven't succumbed to those lies in that way, but instead have created a version of human sexuality that looks nothing like the glorious picture that your word paints. I pray for those of us who are raising children that you give us wisdom, number one, to protect them from the lies that surround us, but number two, to prepare them, to inculcate them in the truth of your word, and to teach them to respect human sexuality, and to view it, the truth, beauty, and goodness that they can find in it only when they find it in you. And Lord, as we live in this way, I pray that it would be a sweet and fragrant aroma to you and to those around us. I pray that in the midst of fighting against the lies in our world that we don't forget that there are people whose lives have been destroyed by those lies and they desperately need the life 
life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming, life-enriching truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant by your grace that we might be quick to share it. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We know that you wanted to be at the Fight Laugh Feast Conference, but you can't come all the days. We have a day pass where you can come on Saturday where you get to hear great speakers like Pastor Doug Wilson, Pastor Jared Longshore, Pastor Toby Sumter, Cross Politics Live Show with Jason Whitlock and Megan Basham. Join us for the Sabbath Feast where we get to laugh with comedian John Brannion, all for the low, low price of $99. Sign up for the day pass, flfnetwork.com. Looking forward to seeing you there at the conference. When tyrants take over, what's the first thing they do? Disarm. It happened in Russia, China, Germany, and most recently, Afghanistan. Why? Because disarmed people are easier to control. And over the last century and a half, American tyrants have been carrying out a slow, methodical disarmament that no one is talking about. State education. Tyrants know that education is warfare. Our rulers have a vested interest in making you totally harmless. They've got big plans and they don't want you getting in the way. Think about it. Would you rather fight an army decked out with high-powered rifles or a bunch of dinky water pistols? They know that if you can think critically, you're a threat. At New St. Andrews College, we want to graduate men and women who are dangerous. Dangerous to the world, dangerous to the principalities and powers, dangerous to spiritual wickedness in high places. Education can either arm you or disarm you. It can make you a threat or make you a useful idiot. <laughs> so where you get that education counts. Click the link to apply to New St. Andrews College today.